this is the day that the Lord has made, and we ought to rejoice and be glad in it. It is good to see each and every one of you on this Lord's Day. We, on behalf of those who attend the Bridge Church, we say thank you for being with us. If this is your first or second time, we would ask that you would complete the Bridge card. It's our way of connecting uh, with you. And so later on in the service, during our worship through offering, we will have the opportunity uh, for you to return those in the blue bags that come across. As you can see, our bridge kids are being dismissed at this time. This is like a Sunday school class for elementary age students. And so we're going to dismiss you now at this time. Your teachers are waiting for you, um, and they are ready for you. Um, and then you will return later towards the end of service. This morning, we are starting a new series, a new sermon series um, from the prophetic book of Amos, from the book of Amos. And so today, that's where our sermon will come from. We've, our worship team has already read our scripture for this morning. We're preaching um, and hearing from God from Amos chapter 1 and Amos chapter 2. One thing that I hope I never have to deal with is a lawsuit. I hope that I am never personally sued. I hope our church is never sued. Because going to court is very unpredictable. Juries are unpredictable. And with them being as unpredictable as they are, all of my assets, all of our assets are at risk. Friends, we live in a very litigious society. You can sue anyone for about anything, which is why it's important that we get tort reform in our country. More than being personally sued, more than the church being sued, what I fear most is God himself filing suit against us. Friends, today in chapters 1 and 2, there is a prophetic form of scripture called the covenant lawsuit. And what we've heard in our hearing today and what we will study in today's sermon is God filing suit against the nations. And so today, Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2, I want to preach to us from this thought, God the Israel at all. God v. Israel at all. At all means and others. God has, fallen, has filed suit against Israel and her surrounding nations. And today I want us to step into this courtroom where God filed suit against the nations. In order for there to, uh, uh, the state to file suit against anyone, they need someone to represent them. The person that represents the state, the government, is called the prosecutor. 
The first thing I want us to look at as we look at chapters 1 and 2 of Amos is look with me at the prosecutor of divine wrath. The prosecutor of divine wrath. The book opens up in chapter 1 verse 1 by identifying the prophet as Amos. And what we learn about Amos is that he is called a prophesy. But before he was called a prophesy, his vocation was that of a shepherd. Later on, we find out that he was also a breeder and grower of sycamore trees. He, he was from the city of Tekoa, which is approximately 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Now, the one thing you ought to know about Amos is Amos is a uniquely called prophet. He did not come from the Levitical priest line. He did not come from a prophetic family origin. He was not a professional prophet. He was just a shepherd in a grower of sycamore trees. He's unique in that he hasn't been a prophet for a long time. God just calls him from his vocation, from, from, from what he normally does, and he says, I want you to go prophesy on my behalf. Friends, it's not the seminary degree that gives the prophet his credentials. It's not how long you've been in the church that gives you your credentials. What give gives one the credentials to speak on behalf of God is that they've been called by God. The contents of this book are what Amos saw concerning Israel. During, during this period of time, let me give us some context. The mon monarchy was divided with Israel occupying the northern kingdom and Judah occupying the southern kingdom. So this prophecy that Amos is giving is for the northern kingdom of Israel. The dating of this prophecy is around mid-8th century B.C. And the ministry of Amos occurred during the time of King Jeroboam II, who was king over Israel. Why is this important? Because during the reign of King Jeroboam II, Israel was experiencing great prosperity. Their borders had enlarged. The economy was booming. They were secure from foreign enemies. However, their prosperity in the world led to complacency in their relationship with Yahweh. Friends, this was a time of great apostasy or departure from being faithful to the Lord. They, they participated in syncretistic worship or blended worship, meaning they would worship Yahweh, but they would also worship idol gods. They worshiped in unauthorized locations. Their backsliding was most evident in how they treated one another. Friends, prosperity is not always a sign of God's favor. Sometimes it's a sign of God's mercy that he allows us to prosper in spite of our sinfulness. In the midst of this spiritual complacency, the Lord calls a prophet by the name of Amos. I think it's important for us before we push forward to understand what is a prophet. I would like 
to offer you a description of a prophet. I believe a prophet is best understood as God's covenant attorney. They're God's covenant enforcer. The task of the prophet was to bring charges against the people of God, confront them with their crimes or their sins, and call them to return to God or or suffer his wrath. The prophet's task is to confront sinners with their transgressions and warn them of coming judgment. These prophets, they are Yahweh's prosecutors. Their job was to represent the kingdom of God on earth. And in their representation of Yahweh, they were to speak the word of the Lord. And that's what we see in the beginning of every speech to the nations. Eight different times, every speech begins with this. Thus saith the Lord. Beloved, this is where the prophet receives his authority. A prophet's job is not to speak his words, his opinion. A prophet's task is to proclaim what thus saith the Lord. The prophet's task is to faithfully represent God. And the prophet can only do this if he God's words to God's people. I submit to you this morning that the ministry of the prophet, the preacher, has fallen on hard times. Those called to to proclaim the life-changing, soul-saving message of the gospel would rather be popular than fruitful. They'd rather be popular than faithful. They'd rather please men than please God. I think it's important for us to understand the role of the prophet, the person that speaks on God's behalf, because I've seen what y'all share on social media. And a lot of us, would, we, we like the prophet that makes us feel good. We like the prophet that helps us therapeutically. That, that we, that one of the things that... that, that I, I'm telling you, I, was, uh, I used to work with um, uh, the mom of a, of a member of uh, that church in Houston, that big one, Joel Osteen. And what they said, this is their word, this is what mom said. So, uh, yes, I heard it third hand. Mom said, he liked going to church, he says, because I always leave there feeling so good. You all not always leave here feeling good. Sometimes you ought to feel convicted. If we make much of the holiness of God, when we see how holy God is, we ought to see how broken we are. If we, see, if we have a high view of God, we'll have a proper view of ourselves. That's what Isaiah says. He says, uh, in, the, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And he saw the, the cherubims crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy. In other words, they, they were saying to one another, he's the holiest of holies. And when Isaiah observed that holy view of God, he says, woe is me. That's what happens when we have a proper view of God. We will say, I'm undone. I'm unworthy to be in this very holy presence. 
And so just because something sounds good doesn't mean it's good and sound, church. The prophet is called to speak on God's behalf. Now, if anything makes you feel good, you ought to leave here feeling good. Just you know what? As sinful as I am, God loved me and he's dealt with my sin through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So I don't have to leave here with my head hung down like I, I don't have a future because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If y'all were Pentecostal, y'all be running all around this place right now. All right, I've got ahead of myself. So Amos is God's prosecutor. Now, before we push forward, the, the, the order, the structure to today's sermon is centered around a court case or court proceedings. So yes, we're going to skip around as far as uh, the verses are concerned, but, no, but I want you to know that there is some kind of structure around how the sermon is ordered. So we see the prosecutor of divine wrath. We, we, we learned that it's Amos. And the first thing that we see in Amos chapter 1, verse 2, are these words. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. The top of Carmel withers. In other words... Verse 2 is the theme verse of the entire book. What this whole book is about is the Lord pictured as a lion roaring from his holy mountain. A lion roars as he's about to attack. And when the Lord roars, the effect, verse 2, is devastating. So we see the, the prosecutor, God's covenant attorney, God's covenant representative is Amos. So then we've seen who represents God. Why has God filed suit? Look with me secondly at the provocation of divine wrath. The provocation of divine wrath. What is it that provokes God to wrath. Let's review together the crimes that the prosecution brings and shows us what provokes God's wrath. The first set of crimes that we see that provoke God's wrath are crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity. In verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1, we have the announcement of judgment against Damascus. They've been brought to court because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. In other words, they've been brought on charges of international war crimes. They, they brutalize the people of Gilead. Friends, this is outright barbaric activity. In other words, here's what they did. They took boards that were bent upward at the front and they were studded with iron prongs to torture and kill their enemies. That tool was used to thresh wheat. 
And instead of them, and they took that same tool that was used to thresh wheat to brutalize human beings. Friends, this was an outright total disregard for the dignity of human life. We've got to move fast because we've got a lot of territory to cover. What's the next nation's crime? Look at Gaza, verse 6 of chapter 1. Gaza represents all of Philistine. God brings charges against Gaza for carrying into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. The charges brought against Philistine was that they deported a whole people group and sold them into slavery. Friends, God deplores slave trade. And in the eyes of God, this is a crime that must be dealt with. Next charge. Look with me at verse 9. Tyre, which represents all of Phoenicia. God filed suit against them because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. In other words, God brings charges against them because they broke their treaty with a covenant partner. As a result of this treaty breaking, treaty breaking, excuse me, they sold a whole group of people to another nation. Friends, it's important for us to realize that God expects nations and individuals to keep their word. When nations and individuals make vows, pledges, and promises to others, God holds us to that vow. Beloved, God has a low tolerance level for those who break treaties and takes away human freedom and dignity, especially when the motive is material profit. If you see, we went to Damascus, then we've gone down to Gaza, went back up to Tyre. Now, it's time to go eat them. God is like crisscrossing his paths. God now brings charges against Edom in verse 11. Why? Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Their crime was that they pursued a covenant partner, that's what they mean by brother here, with the intent to kill. And God brings them to court because they did not show compassion toward their brother. Rather than pursuing reconciliation, they allowed their anger to fester, which led them to perpetually hate this brother nation. And this lack of compassion and perpetual hate is a crime in the eyes of God. Next nation, Ammon. Verse 13. What were they guilty of? God brings charges against them because they were guilty of ripping open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. Friends, this was brutal and inhumane treatment of women. 
This was an extremely heinous act of terror. And this act likely led to the death of the mother and the child. Friends, this is a complete disregard for the life of the mother and the unborn child. And God says, this is the sin that will bring my judgment against this nation. Moving forward. Next person on trial. Chapter 2, verse 1. Moab. They are brought to court because they burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. In other words, they either burned the king to death or they exhumed his remains and then burned his remains to lime. Either way, this was mistreatment of the dead. Now, what we see is all six of these foreign nations are brought to court because they have committed crimes against humanity. They are guilty before the Lord because they had a complete and total disregard for the sanctity and dignity of human life. And friends, these are all examples of injustice. And friends, injustice is always a crime before God. I think one of the things that God wants to teach us in this passage is that all life has dignity. By dignity, I mean value, worth. Why? Because all of mankind has been created in the image of God. And it is the responsibility of every image bearer to, to value the life of their fellow image bearers. And church, when we don't, we commit sin and stand guilty before our creator and maker. And as the people of God, we have a duty to oppose all acts of injustice against fellow image bearers. Up until now, all of these nations have been pagan nations. Nations that don't have any kind of relationship with Yahweh. Nations that don't have... Um, uh, they are pagan nations, and they are brought to court, and they are under God's judgment because of crimes against humanity. However, now we're about to see a different type of crime. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Thus said the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Stop. Because I don't have anywhere else to say this. Every time God gets ready to speak to a nation, he opens up with this. For three transgressions of Judah and for four. As much of divine wrath as there are in this passage, as much as judgment as there is in this passage, the one thing I don't want us to, for, to, to see or disregard here is that God is also a patient God. Because it could have said, for just this sin, I will bring my punishment. But he says, for, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. And that was a rhetorical way of saying, for all the sins that they committed. Not just these three or four, but all the sins that they committed. So God, they have sinned and they have sinned and they have sinned and they continually sin against God. And God has been patient with them. God has been merciful with them. But then finally God says, enough is enough. 
Time has run out. I've got to deal with your sin. So God has been tolerant with all of these nations. So now, verse chapter 2, verse 4, he now condemns Judah. Why? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walk. Notice that God now brings charges against his own people. And the first being Judah. And the Lord files suit against them because they've committed crimes against the Lord. Crimes against the Lord. They have completely, the text says, rejected the law of the Lord. They have completely, wholeheartedly forsaken the covenant made between them and the Lord. Their rejection of this law was evidenced in their behavior. The text says they didn't keep any of his statues. They were disobedient to God's rules. And they were led away by lies. Those lies, by the way, were idol gods. So then God brings charges against Judah, not for crimes against humanity, but for crimes against him. They sinned against God. The big issue here is that they fail to keep the terms of the covenant made between them and God. Remember, a covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties by which each party pledges their allegiance to one another. And the primary term of the covenant is loyalty. They pledge their allegiance to Yahweh, but fail to be faithful in their pledge. Friend, that was the point of the first of the Ten Commandments, which was, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So God has now brought charges against seven nations, one of which is his own people. Now, let's remember what's been happening here. Amos is speaking on behalf of the Lord to Israel. And as they hear his message, they are probably saying, Amen. Get them, God. That's right. Get them. Our enemies, yep, they're horrible people. They deserve God's judgment. But Amos has one more nation that God is bringing suit against. Israel. What does God charge them with? Everything up to this point has been leading up to this. First, he charges Israel with unjust court systems. The first thing he charges them with is unjust court decisions. Look at verse 6. They sell the righteous for silver. Based on the context, I understand the term righteous to mean innocent. So, so what was happening was they were accepting bribes and bringing false charges and, un, and giving unjust sentences against innocent people. Their courts were corrupt because their judges were corrupt. The witnesses were corrupt. Here's what's happening. The courts were only working for the wealthy and the powerful. 
because they had the means to pay off the judges. And the poor received no justice because they couldn't pay up. All right. Let's get down and dirty now. Friends, what was happening in uh, uh, mid-8th century B.C. is still happening in 2018 in the United States of America. That's a surprise. I wasn't expecting all of that. The poor receive inadequate defense because they can't afford to pay attorneys. The representation that's afforded to the poor is a public defender. Now, let me, make, let me make this statement. God bless the hearts and the work of public defenders. However, they are unable to do the, their job to the best of their ability because they have extremely high caseloads and not enough time to prepare their cases. As a result, listen to me, church, innocent People stay in jail just because their public defender doesn't have time to work on their case. When they stay in jail, they can't work. When they can't work, they get fired. When they lose their job, they can't pay rent. So they lose housing. If they have children, they can't care for their children, so they lose custody of their children. Church, let me say unequivocally and unapologetically, this is an injustice in the eyes of God, and we as a nation stand guilty before God. What we are learning in Amos is that this kind of injustice incurs the wrath of God. But Brandon, I, I'm, I'm not the one paying off anybody. I don't, I, I, I'm not doing, we participate in unjust systems. So we stand complicit in this evil. Don't raise your hands. Don't, don't, do not raise, do not raise your hands. But how many went to vote for the district attorney this week? And I don't care whether you are a Democrat or Republican. The problem with sermons like this is y'all think Brandon has gone liberal on you. The problem in the church is that we make issues of injustice, liberal versus conservative issues. Shame on us. This is not a liberal or conservative issue. This is a God issue, a gospel issue. This is not liberal. That's what happens. Brandon, he, he, I think he's a Democrat. Well, shame on you. I'm a child of the king. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And my allegiance, and I pledge my loyalty to the kingdom of heaven before any other country on the earth. God bless America. Yeah, I'm glad to be an American. Yes, I am. But before I'm an American, I'm a Christian. Yeah. And what God says is holy is holy. And what God says is wrong is wrong. And to favor a group of people over those who are more vulnerable, like the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, we will stand condemned before God. Somebody in here is saying, Brandon, I agree. But it's not my fault the poor are poor. 
They just need to work harder and better themselves. Let me just, since I've already made some of you mad, let me just tell you this. That attitude is outright unchristian and unbiblical. The Bible, not Brandon, the Bible says the poor are our concern. Look what the Bible says, Proverbs 22, verses 22 through 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Proverbs 31, verse 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. I feel like we just need to stop and have an altar call and y'all need to bombard the altar because you have sinned by being silent. And what happens in the book of Amos is God says, I'm going to destroy the whole nation. And not just unbelieving pagan people, but the church. God says, open your mouth. Say something. Do something. I'm not done. I got more verses. First John chapter 3 verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his hand against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Friends, my simple point is this. Yes, the poor are our problem in the church. All right, before I lose my job, verse 7. What else did God bring charges on them for? God continues on this theme of the poor. He says, they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Essentially, he is confronting them with how they treat the poor in everyday life. He he says, y'all are essentially walking all over the poor, like they are objects and not people. Moving on, the third accusation against Israel is also found in verse 7. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. God now brings charges against his own people of illicit sexual behavior. Here's what has happened. They have taken God's good gift of sex and used it to satisfy their own sinful lust. God has two issues. First, they have taken the holy gift of sex and profaned it. Friends, y'all get quiet every time I say the sex word. Here's what you need to know, though. I need to pastor you for a moment. Church. Sex is a holy gift from God that is to be enjoyed in a holy union between one man and one woman for the holy purpose of procreation and pleasure. Rewind. Press play. Sex is a holy gift. Holy is set apart from God It's a holy gift from God. It's to be enjoyed in a holy union. The Bible says only in marriage is the bed undefiled. Between one man and one woman 
for the holy purpose of procreation and pleasure. And what had happened in Israel was they had taken that which was holy and used it and made it unholy. God's second issue with how they treated this woman was that they had a lack of respect and honor for this female. And friends like Israel, we too stand guilty. We treat sex like it's not holy. We exploit women and men when we watch pornography. Unfortunately, the hashtag Me Too movement has hit the church. Women in the church are treated as if they are a piece of meat and are preyed upon by men with power, positions, and privilege in the church. Every week I see something on Twitter about some pastor who has fallen because he couldn't stay faithful to his own wife. And God says when we do these things, when we do these things, we profane his holy name. Next accusation, verse 8. God charges them with idolatry because he, here's what they were doing. He says, they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who had been fined. And God finally says to Israel, enough is enough. Now let me point out something again. Before we leave this point, this second point, it's important to observe what Amos has done. The first six speeches are against foreign nations. These are nations that have no relationship with Yahweh. It's not until the seventh speech concerning Judah that Amos deals with God's special chosen people. Up until the Judah speech, the hearers of Amos' message would have been thinking that all the problems are out there. But Amos drops a bomb. He indicts God's special chosen people, Judah and Israel. In other words, Amos is sending the message that the problems are not just outside the body, but they're inside the body as well. The people of God are just as guilty as those who are not the people of God. And friends, nothing has changed. The problem is just not out there in the culture, but we in the church are just as guilty. And according to Amos 1 and 2, we need to hear the roar of the lion. The prosecutor has been identified. He's shown us what provokes God's wrath. The charges have been announced. The evidence has been submitted. Now, what is the verdict? Look with me finally at the pronouncement of divine wrath. The pronouncement of divine wrath. God finds all of these nations guilty. And what we learn about this pronouncement of divine wrath is first of all, God's wrath is comprehensive. God's wrath is comprehensive. In other words, God's wrath comes on all. It's universal. I believe one of the things that we're to learn from these two chapters is that the Lord is Lord of all. Now, 
you may be having some theological indigestion. Because you may be wondering, how is it that God can hold unbelieving pagan nations responsible for their transgressions? Is God's judgment on pagan people consistent with his goodness and his justice? And I say that's a great question. Friends, what Amos is teaching us is that worshipers of false gods are not immune to God's judgment because of their allegiance to other gods. You may be saying to yourself, but they did not have any form of special revelation like the Bible or God speaking directly to them through a prophet. But maybe they had even never, maybe they had never heard the name of God, Yahweh. And the Bible says, church, that none of these excuses are sufficient. What ties into this question is, what about those people who have never heard of Jesus? What about people who have never heard the gospel? Is God going to condemn them to hell? Look with me at Romans chapter 1. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. We're going to bring it up on the screen too. Chapter 1, verse 18. Just kidding. Find it in your Bible. It would not be on the screen. <laughs> Romans 1, that's my fault. Chapter 1, verse 18. Paul had just said that I'm not ashamed of the gospel for the power of God that leads to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1, verse 18 says this. Listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here it is. For what can be known about God is plain to them. How? Because God has shown it to them. How did he do that? Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. Friends, Romans 1 makes it clear that everyone is without excuse for knowing God. Why? Because the existence of God and the power of God is evident through the things he has made. Creation displays the glory of God. Creation is evidence that God exists. We call this uh, creation general revelation or natural revelation. And what makes it general is that it's available to everyone. And it's everywhere. And what Romans 1, Romans 1 argues is that God has provided sufficient evidence of himself to the entire world so that all are held accountable who reject his general revelation. 
And that's why God can hold these foreign nations and Amos responsible for their sins. Because all they had to do was open their eyes and look around. And God had already given them light that he exists and that he is powerful and that he is eternal. And, said, and God says, you are now guilty. Okay. Let me work a little harder there. Romans 2. Paul is saying, Israel, you are really going to be judged for your sin because the Gentiles, the people who are not God's elect people, they do right even when they don't have the law. How is it that they do right when they don't even have the law, the written law? Because the law has been written on their hearts. In other words, because they too, the Gentiles, have been made in the image of God, they have a conscience whereby they know right and wrong. That's why there are some unchristian people who are better people than Christian people. Because they have been made in the image of God and they are moral beings. And God says, based on that, you still stand guilty. I know you don't like it. It doesn't seem fair, but we dealt with that last week about fairness according to human standards. God says, they're guilty. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky show forth his handiwork. He's given them enough to know that he exists. And if they would have just come to that light, God would have given them more light. Jesus Christ. So, so all people stand condemned, including these foreign nations. So God's wrath is comprehensive. His wrath has not come just on his chosen people, but all of creation. Why? Because he is Lord of all. That's why we've got to be careful with our language in the church. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. He just is. Whether we make him or not, he is Lord. God's wrath is comprehensive, but God's wrath is also certain. God's wrath will come on all ungodly and sinful people. Brandon, where do you see that in the text? Because God, on eight different occasions, he says, I will not revoke punishment. God's judgment is certain. There's no escaping. In order for God to remain true to himself and his holiness, his wrath has to come upon all sin. And friends, every one of us in here has a date with judgment. Romans chapter 2 verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. God's wrath is being revealed in the present and God's wrath is forthcoming. And you may be wondering, what should I do in response to this impending wrath? 
I'm glad you asked because not only is God's wrath comprehensive, not only is God's wrath certain, but God's wrath is also Christ satisfied. Friends, Jesus Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. In the scripture, that's called propitiation. On the cross, God poured out his wrath on his own son, Jesus Christ, for the sin of the world. The nations. And people from every nation, church, can be rescued from the coming wrath based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verses 8 through 9 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath to come. Worship team, you can make your way back up here. Beloved, if you turn to Christ by faith, you can be delivered, saved, rescued from God's wrath. However, if you do not respond to God's gracious gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, then the wrath of God remains on you. So what do I do, Brandon? Repent and believe the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved from the wrath of God. Hallelujah. Today, somebody in here, God says, I've got charges against you. You've committed crimes against me. You have not loved me with your whole heart. Mind, body, soul, and spirit. I've got charges against you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory. God says, I've got charges against you. You've committed the crime of not worshiping me. You've served idols, the idols of comfort and security and preferences. Work. God brings charges this morning, church. The thing about this courtroom, this heavenly courtroom, God not only brings charges, but God is also the judge. But there is a defensive turning an advocate by the name of Jesus Christ. And he's got one piece of evidence to submit on your behalf. His blood. And as soon as he sees, as the judge sees the blood, the judge says, all right, not guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, that's why I can proclaim I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Because I've got an advocate in Christ Jesus. You need that advocate this morning if you, if you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ by faith. 
Maybe you're already saved. Well, praise God, child of God, that you are saved. God says your commitment does not end the moment you become saved. Now you have a duty not only to love me, but to love your neighbor. There are some guilty people in this room this morning. You have not opened your mouth for the needy, the poor, women, or men, the immigrant, the orphan. And God says you are guilty. Whether you are guilty by sin of commission or sin, that's where most of us fall, omission. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And God says, you stand condemned before me. Now, we've got five more weeks in this series, and so we can talk about solutions later, about what you can actually do. But more than anything, what I wanted us to come out of this sermon today was us to have a broadened perspective on justice. Because let me tell you something. The church, we are people of justice. Yes, we are. There is one issue that most church people vote on. Abortion. We fight for justice for the unborn. And we ought to. God's people ought to fight for justice for the unborn. Say amen. amen. But we ought to fight for justice for those who are living as well. And God says, if you just fight for justice for one group of pe people, you're still guilty. If you're not fighting for justice for the poor, if you're not fighting for justice for the immigrant, if you're not fighting for justice for, for, for all people, you are sinful and guilty. The book says it, not Brandon. And so I just wanted us to have a broadened understanding and definition or description of justice. Because God doesn't just destroy nations because of how they treat the unborn. He destroys nations for how they treat all people who have been created in his image. And so that's why I'm not trying to start a political movement. Actually, I am. It's the politics of the kingdom of God. But we're going to have to figure out ways as the people of God to do justice for all people individually and nationally. Next week we're just going to spend time just confessing sin. Corporately. We'll do it all together because we all stand guilty including your pastor more that we all can do. More that we all should say. Y'all think, I, let me tell you something. Let me just be completely transparent. I hate preaching messages like this because I'm misunderstood. People uh, uh, assign motives and agendas to me that I don't have. The only agenda I have is the gospel. I'm God's, I'm a man of God. I'm God's prophet. My job is to speak 
on his behalf to the people of God, whether you like it or not. And I have to be faithful to him. And I care more about pleasing God than pleasing you. I love you now. Until this becomes a heart issue, a fully devoted follower of Christ issue, not a liberal issue or a conservative issue or an independent issue or a libertarian issue or a Green Party issue, until it becomes I'm a follower of Christ issue, we've got work to do, church. What we need is our life, our will needs to be conformed to his. And so that's what we're going to sing right now by way of response. We're going to just sing, Lord, take my life and conform it to yours. That's what we need. And if we can do that, then we'll stop seeing these issues through our political lenses and we'll see them through our gospel lenses. Let's stand. Let's stand.